A very good day. Welcome to the podcast. Happy Valentine's Day, should I say. It's the 14th of February, 2023. Here in Spain, well, we have one of those mornings where, you know, you know it's winter, but at the same time, it's looking uh, pretty good. It's looking nice today. It's going to be, I think, a little bit of sun about. So all in all, I'm going to sound positive and um, let's find out how Matt is this morning. Matt, uh, very good day. How are you today? Oh, I'm full of cold, Vince, but uh, hopefully it's only a cold. But that uh, doesn't stop any stop you being cheery, does it? Let's uh, let's move on with the day. Yeah. Um, but I'm in I'm in uh, a freezing cold fog bound England in Bath again, so uh, it's uh, it's uh, not so nice here. Well, look, um, y- you reckon you caught the the, the cold in Spain, uh, but certainly it doesn't do you any good going on a plane. I mean, the number of people I meet who uh, they've been on a plane or on a coach or something, and within within days they'll catch a cold. So, no, I, I agree with you. I think it is, but I. I did get mine. I, I brought my. I'd had mine for a couple of days actually before or coming. You know when a cold's coming. Yeah. You sort of feel a bit like. But I'm not anywhere near as ill when I had COVID. I did have COVID, right. and uh, I have to say, I for three days I was floored, absolutely floored. I couldn't. I couldn't move. I really couldn't move. But uh, this is just. This is just a nasty cold. Okay. Well, look. Uh, and it's, which, the, it's one of those things that your mother used to say, get on with it. Well, I had a very, very old-fashioned doctor in England, and he used to always say, if you've got a heavy cold, he said, it'll last a fortnight. But if you take all the stuff from the medicine places, you know, the pharmacy and anything else you get your hands on, you might get away with 14 days. So, you know, he <laughs> he was quite wise in many ways. Now, we're looking today... No, it burns itself out. Yeah, well, we're looking today at aspects of living in Spain. Um, so, once again, it's wide. But then again, I think if you've got lively minds, then anything you discuss can be pretty wide so when you were planning to come to spain did you have any notion any um comprehension at all of the language had you learned any spanish no i i was running away from england that's why i came to spain i i really thought that there was a better life to be had in spain um, be- not because of any other reason about Spain, really. Um, it was just because I could see the future of the UK. Now, that sounds pretty harsh being an Englishman, but unfortunately, everything I thought has, be- has come to fruition at the moment. Um, and I-, I got myself over... I had a very, very sick, ill friend who was dying, and she... Um, she couldn't get a holiday. She couldn't, she couldn't, she, she I knew, she, I knew I wanted to leave, but she didn't have a holiday. And I said to her, listen, um, why don't we get on a plane and go to Spain and I'll drive you up and down the coast because it's where she always wanted to go. So we, we went to Malaga, we got a plane to Malaga and then we flew from, uh, we drove all the way with this sick woman. And I mean, she was on within six weeks of dying um, of cancer. And we drove all the way up the coast to Barcelona. And when I got to Altea, we, I, I had booked to see this house um, in Altea because I thought when I arrived in Malaga, I thought, well, this is quite nice. This is warm. It, the climate's nice. It's not cold. It's not raining. It's uh, very pleasant. It wasn't uh, in high season. It was sort of March time, I believe. And um, we got to Barcelona and we'd, we'd stopped at Altea. And as I say, I'd seen this house and she, she stood with me on the balcony and she had her blanket on. It wasn't cold, but she was freezing. And I put my arms around her and she said, you've got to live here. You've got to live in this house. These views and this mountains around us and everything, you're as near to God as you're ever going to be. Wow. And that really struck a chord, and I shall never forget it. And uh, that was it. 
I, I came back. I made an offer on the property. I don't know how it happened, but the estate agent actually got them to lower the price. I didn't ask for the price to be lowered, but he knocked uh, a substantial sum off the property um, and I bought it. And that was it. I came to Spain and that was back in uh, the year 2000. So really, you, you hadn't done what we had done. You didn't really plan it. It was just um, a bit of a whim, really, by the sound of things. Well, I would say it was a divine guidance. Okay. Not so much of a whim. Yeah. I'm sorry if that sounds uh, off-putting to some, but to me, there was a, a spiritual involvement, especially when you, and you know yourself, when you look around the mountains and you see the nature and you see the sea and you see the wonders that it beholds. It sounds very biblical, but it's actually true. It is an amazing place to live. Well, my uh, divine intervention, if we're going to put it that way, uh, didn't come till later because uh, I knew that we were um, we were planning to come because I, I can remember going to um, a class in Truro with, a, in fact, the proudest thing I can remember coming from that whole six weeks or whatever it was course was to remember the word Ayuntamiento. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I would tell people ad nauseam, Ayuntamiento is the town hall. So, you know, um, yes, I, I went and learned a little, a little bit of the language, enough to get by um, and get myself a cup of coffee, that sort of thing. And, uh, of course, my original idea, um, I think when we very first came, it was to test the water. So we came out for a month. I sang in the hotels in Benidorm and then went back to my work in the college in Cornwall. And then I came back uh, the next year and did three months. And at the end of the three months... Um, we started really, uh, you know, uh, beginning to get the right vibes and everything. And I'd picked up a little uh, sort of job with Onda Thero. They'd asked me if I would be, this is the radio station, of course, um, they'd asked me if I'd be the first reserve. And uh, we'd met um, Hugh and Beverly, who were running the station, and um, at uh, the, the Garden restaurant in Altair, if you, you, I'm sure you'll know that one. Um, yes, that's it. And um, anyway, uh, they offered me the job, and I said, well, look, I, I, I can't take the job yet because, you know, I've got to go back to England. I've got commitments. And then when um, we said that, they said, well, we'll hold a job o open for you. So they held the job for me from probably something like, um, well, it was certainly about five months before we managed actually to get back and start the, that job, which was, um, you know, uh, First Reserve, which, uh, was, which was lovely. Um, so let me go first then to buying a property. So that's something that a lot of people, when they want to come and live out here, they've got to address... On reflection and from your experience now, um, would it be or would it have been a smooth operation, uh, operation um, buying the house? Or did you find that any complications that, um, you know, seem to manifest themselves to people coming over and buying property here? So was it smooth for you or was it difficult? I think that, that here, all, having had sort of 25 years experience, and my son is also a, uh, an estate agent now as well. So I know quite a lot about estate agency here. Um, I think the agents, it's a different setup to the UK. Um, they don't have to have any qualifications here. You could sell a house tomorrow and uh, take the 10% or whatever the percentage is of the property that they decide to do. But most of it's 10% now which if you consider properties being valued at 500,000, 50 grand is, an, is a pretty good sum of money for someone to pocket, but then you're going up to two and a half million and you're looking at a quarter of a million, you know, profits, some of the properties he sells are that sort of price range. Now, um, I actually, the, the actually agent, the Immobiliaria for me, was really good. He, he, he did everything. Like I said, he... He actually got the price knocked 
down. Um, I didn't ask him to do it. He got it. He got it lower. Um, I do. I would say that where I live in Altea La Vella, um, up by the golf course, there was a share of the golf course with the property. However, that disappeared when he uh, when he exchanged contracts. But at the time, um, it was very much, and I'm sure you're aware of this, um, when we went to the um, Hestor and we exchanged contracts, um, there were lots of envelopes flashing from one side of the, of the table to the other. And in the old days, of course, they're, they're getting tighter on that now, there was a lot of cash that went, not, not that I paid cash, I paid to the bank. But there were, I don't know, finders fees or settlement fees. I don't know what they, what you want to call them. But uh, I sat there and I was quite bemused at these brown envelopes and, and also going to the notaries as well, not just to the, uh, not to the estate agents and, and whoever. They were, it, was, it was almost like a, a game of cards. They were flashing backwards and forwards. But that is the system. But so, no, in answer to your question, my purchase was really easy. They did it all for me, and there was no, n- no real holdups. Well, we've had um, three houses here in Spain. Now, certainly, I think it was the first one. Anne had been in hospital, and she was on crutches. So uh, the guy that was buying our house uh, was coming down from France, and he insisted on cash. So I had to uh, walk from the notario's office in Benidorm to a bank with uh, our life savings, which was obviously the house uh, purchase price, um, in, on, uh, on, my, on my body. And, of course, I was uh, thinking, I've you know, got to be very careful here. I had a young... Uh, they thought you were a bomber, didn't they? They thought you were a bomber. <laughs> well... With all it, the money stashed around put it this way you know i had this young uh, younger state uh, no she was the um she was the lawyer <coughs> she was a very young 24 year old and she from the bank she was the bank manager that's right on one side of yeah. me i had Anne, uh, hardly able to uh, walk properly on the other side um i had um you know all this money on me and we had to go to one bank and put it in that bank so that we could make the purchase. And then later, whatever was the balance, transfer to our own bank. I mean, it was just so ridiculous, really. Um, and then, of course, there's all this nonsense about the notario. Well, the notary in, in England, of course. And everybody is sort of kowtowing to this uh, notario that will arrive. And then as, of course... Uh, he says, I'm just going out of the room for a second or two. All the envelopes start flying round, as you were saying. And I remember saying, I don't want to do anything under the table because I feared that it would come back to bite us. I th- I knew that they would start putting in um, bits of administration through the European Union, uh, which I, I think I was proven right with that. And um, it also... I think uh, from other people's house sales, um, it's pretty obvious that the notario absolves him or her. So usually a he. Uh, uh, mind you, these days with the pronouns, you've got to be careful. You wouldn't know who you're talking about. They, them or us. Anyway. Well, you a he, shim or whatever, couldn't it really? You don't know. Well, the um, the notario turns around and ab- absolves himself of any blame whatsoever from anything. So that will come into people's house purchases at a later time. It's a very, very weird procedure. But then again, uh, I can't remember now how we did it in England. So maybe it was the same in England. I don't remember it um, being like no, it that. Was all through, in England, it was all because that was my business, really, the houses and buying and selling houses. Um, it was all done by your favourite solicitor. I mean, you didn't really, you had to sign at the solicitors, the paper, but they dealt with it all. And you didn't see, all you got was a transfer of money into your bank once the price was sold or a transfer out to the mortgage company. Um, but everything was dealt with by the solicitors. Um, and that was it. That, that was it in England. It's very, it's much less complicated. Mind you, some people would argue that um, 
watching envelopes fly across a table is isn't very complicated. I suppose it depends on the envelopes ending up. If it's in your pocket, it's all right. But certainly, it's a very black market here. And I know a lot of people who have made an awful lot of money um, selling houses and and uh, were mechanics or bar owners before coming yeah. to Spain, and now they're uh, estate agents. Well, of course, I, I also remember in England, uh, I had a friend, Barry Sherratt, who started one of the very first estate agents in Birkenhead. Um, I can remember up till that time, nobody needed qualifications, really, apart from obviously solicitors and surveyors. Um, but, you know, the estate agents, they didn't have any qualifications. So, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, England obviously changed. And um, I should imagine all those things come to pass anyway uh, in the European Union. Um, OK, let's well, go. Fortunately, not here, but just, just a, an addendum to that is still, because I know about it through my, my uh, son, still there is no qualification needed for to be an estate agent in Spain, there is you could anybody can do it. However, apparently, allegedly, and some backhander will go down somewhere. I'm sure uh, it's supposed to be coming in this year that you will actually have to take a qualification. Now, um, it's muted that if you are already in business and you have a legal business that is has a bank account and whatever, you will be automatically given the right to be an estate agent. So take that from what you will. I don't, I think that's, it's a load of uh, cover up myself, but yeah. uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're very right. Spanish. <laughs> well, look, I, I think uh, we've, uh, we've glossed over learning the language. We will go back to that. Um, but obviously when you get here quickly, uh, you will want to possibly open a bank account. So, um, I think that all went reason reasonably okay for us. Um, uh, was it the same for you? Did you just produce whatever documents you were asked to? Um, you know, obviously, they've got to know who you are. Uh, but, of course, <coughs> when we live in a country which had a uh, an edict, which an edict which came out a um, few years ago now, and they said that, uh, for example, if you were from Russia and you had half a million euros, um, you could have citizenship. I don't know if you remember that. wasn't that long ago in actual yeah, fact. Yeah, it was something, I think that was for everybody. It wasn't just for Russia. No, no. If you could prove that you had an amount of money in the bank, you could apply for um, your, your gold card without any, without any question. You just applied for it and you got it. And and yet uh, our experience of living here and life tells us quite uh, quite quickly that if you've got half a million floating round, there's a likelihood that that money might have come from a very dodgy source. So, oh, it... abso absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's it's almost like there's two there's two faces to Spanish life in the terms of the financial uh, system. There are the banks. And they know what goes on. They, they, I don't know that they support support it, but to a degree they must. And there is this huge black economy that, that goes around. I mean, I was talking to a restaurateur the other day, um, and he was saying, he, he, you know, he was just saying to me, he runs his business half in black and half in through the books. But, but I know that that happens in the UK as well, although it's getting harder. And not just that, but that's just generally business. But I think that it's just general business. You know, in the world situation, I think we all know that uh, they're trying to get rid of cash. Um, sorry about this, cash is king. Um, but you know, sadly, uh, you know that's going to take away so many different aspects of life. I mean, you won't be able to give um, somebody a tip really in the respect of um, you know just good service or give your grandkids a little bit of money or you know there are so many things that really uh, cash should not be uh, finished with for my way of thinking but if I wanted to control everybody which is where I think we've been going for the last couple of years 
I can clearly see that that would be an area that they would want to um, control very quickly. And I think that's exactly what's got going on. So that doesn't really surprise me. I just hope and keep my prayers uh, there that um, it doesn't happen. I just I, th I think it would be a horrible society if we all we do is put a card against um, a, a receiver and then, you know, um, I mean, there's all sorts of things that are, are going to be fiddled no matter what. they want to, If they really want to stop all this, just look in Parliament, in every Parliament. Um, <coughs> you know, the British Parliament's at it again, and uh, certainly we've seen it here in Spain. Matt, uh, let me ask you next about um, running a car then. So one of the things people used to do would be to come over with English plates... And again, since the advent of uh, Brexit and all that sort of stuff, they're not GB plates now. They have to be UK plates, uh, which, of course, is yeah. going to make a huge difference, really. It just uh, was another way of spending a lot more money. Um, but um, the, the, the obvious thing is if you've not got the money to buy a different ch or newer car or upgrade your car or whatever... Um, then you, you'll need about 600 euros, I think, to change the plates on your car and do it via probably a Hestor. Um, that's the way to go, isn't it? Well, you, you, have, you have to do it through a Hestor. You can't do it any other way. Um, but it, the, the value of what you pay depends on the value of the, the machine. Not the value of the machine now, the value of the machine when it was purchased so if you, for example, I changed my motorcycle, which was a, a BMW 1200. It was quite a big bike. And uh, that cost me 1,300 euros wow. at the Hess store to get that onto Spanish plates. That was before Brexit. So it was, it, that's just the system, the way it is here. Um, it doesn't matter so much for a... Uh, a motorcycle i had to have a couple of things changed on it to make it so that it was left hand drive i mean it sounds weird but there were things the instrument panel had to be changed um and things like that the headlights had to be changed and the headlights cost me 1500 pounds to have left hand drive headlights because it was a bmw yeah um <coughs> but um i would advise anybody not to change ever, but we the people did because there were so many people coming over at one point. People did just register their cars, but I've always advised to sell your car before you come and buy a new one. And back in the day when I first came over, um, it was actually substantially cheaper to buy a, a, a newer car here than it was to buy a car in the UK. That has changed. That's completely reversed. It's actually cheaper to buy in the UK now than it is to buy here. But, of course, if you do buy in the UK, you've got to have all the plates changed. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I think also, just going back to the house purchase for the moment, um, I think the advice I would give, and I'd wait for you to make your comment, but for me, we lived... Um, in rented accommodation for about, I think, three months to get the feel of whether we wanted to buy and obviously live here. So people coming over, I think it would be a good idea if you've got friends uh, that will allow you to stay with them. That's a great way to do it. Otherwise, you know, I would rent and uh, get the feel of living here because there are certain things which uh, in the course of our discussion uh, probably will show you that it's quite different to the UK but um, it's it's all manageable it's just basically a question of if you, if you give yourself the opportunity to do that first so would you agree that it's a good idea to rent or live here for a while first? Uh, well I, I came straight over um... And going back to your first question, I didn't quite answer that correctly, but I couldn't speak a word of Spanish when I first arrived, and I joined a gym. And the, this gym was full of Guardia Civil. Uh, they were the, the, the local police officers. And I, being me and a bit of a comic, I made myself look a bit of a, an English dolt, and in a way, put myself much lower than them in terms of uh, 
well, I didn't understand anything, but they probably helped me more to learn the Spanish language than than anybody else. I didn't know any Spanish when I, I, I used to, you know, on the on the you know, the beer, the tea, the coffee, uh, please, thank you, um, where how to go to so and so. I knew all the basics, but not any conversation whatsoever. And it took me probably four years of not... I haven't been to a single class, but I'm a fluent Spanish speaker now. And it's taken me probably... It took me four years to get the basics. And one day, I, I, I received a telephone call in Spanish, and I answered it and in Spanish. And I put the phone down and I went, oh, my goodness, I've just understood that and I've just answered that and it's over. It's finished. It's done. That conversation, I haven't had, got to ask anybody else. I'm the, and from that point on, I can't really remember exactly when that was, but maybe five years. Um, it was brilliant. I, I, I just became half Spanish, I suppose, in a way. And I consider myself that now probably more Spanish than English because I've adopted a lot of the customs, as you say, probably going to come up now, but uh, a lot of the ways of life and the customs of Spain. Yeah, well, uh, really interesting because um, I think there's a big, big point to be made here, and that is if you go to an English area and only mix with English people, English speakers, I'm thinking, you know, so any anybody, any nationality using the English well, language. Scottish. Well, what about the Scottish bins? You get that? You get that Put it this way. Uh, if you're living with a lot of Scottish people, you'll find your English becomes uh, different, to say the very least. Absolutely. <laughs> Listen, uh, uh, as far as going to Scotland is concerned, I've been with Scottish people for a long time, and... Uh, it's an attractive way of speaking. Uh, same as with the... With ah, the, but that's Edinburgh. Uh, just, that's Edinburgh accent. No, no, that's... I'm from Glasgow, you'll be done then. I think the problem really, though, is that if you're with any Brit, doesn't matter where they come from, uh, you're going to be just using your own native tongue and you're not going to expose yourself to the way that Spanish is really spoken. It isn't really Absolutely. spoken. Yeah, it's not really spoken like it's uh, done in classrooms because I've made this second move, uh, or late, latterly, that we've made this move away from the British area to come up to another part of the coast because there were too many people just speaking English. And my Spanish is, yeah. uh, I've got a good grounding through the classes, but it's not the same. Uh, not many people will discuss the grammar with you. They don't want to know the grammar. They'll talk to you. Um, but again, it's the same in English, if you really think about it. If somebody came to talk to you in English and started discussing grammar points, you'd probably prefer that they just talk to you. Um, so the problem really is if you're going to just live with uh, English-speaking neighbours, your Spanish in a general sense is going to be difficult to improve. And certainly from my desire to come and speak Spanish and learn Spanish and be um, you know, pretty good with my Spanish, I found the classes did not do that for me. They taught me... <coughs> They taught me enough of the grammar, they taught me enough of the syntax, but the way to improve your grammar is definitely to be out in the community and listening at the speed that the Spanish speak. And they do speak rather quickly, don't they? Oh, it depends where you come from, but yeah, in some places it's almost un unaudible. Inaudible, sorry, not unaudible, inaudible. You can't, you can't make, you can't make, and even if you concentrate, you cannot understand a word, not even a word. You're listening for a word to link something, but you can't find a word in it. But but that is the case with most most countries and most dialects, I think. Oh, absolutely. You go around the countries, you can't understand some people. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. I think also for those that haven't been to the Costa Blanca, you must be aware that there is a language called Valenciano. And that is obviously in the province of Valencia. And it's one of the, there are about five other languages that exist around Spain. And if you are not aware of this, 
Um, don't be surprised if you're in company and the Spanish pe people will be speaking and then suddenly you don't get a word at all. And the reason will be quite uh, quickly um, that if you um, understand any Castellano, which is the standard Spanish, um, it's very quickly they'll pick that up and they'll use the Valenciano if they don't want you to know what they are discussing. And that happens really quite um, quite a lot in actual fact. Um, oh, yeah, there's, there's a definite there's a definite issue that you would have out if you were in if you were able to communicate and say uh, say something about it. It's actually quite racist, really, what they do. Yeah. They don't seem to mind, but um, a very quick story. I, I went, after about five years of being here, I, I used to teach some of the kids at school um, some English, and I got to know the village, because I, I live in a small village, probably like you do, um, but it's, it is lots of foreigners in there, and I, I, um, I started to teach the kids Spanish, and um, uh, sorry, English to the Spanish kids. And then one day I went into Hermes Bar, which is a small bar in the village where the local, the local bad boys live. They all go in there for Amorto, which is uh, 10 o'clock. Uh, uh, they drink a couple of litres of beer and uh, have a brandy and then they go back to work or, or whatever and have their, their uh, bocadillo, their sandwich. Anyway, there's this table of known the families of the village, which every village actually has, the bosses of the village, and there is a cafe or somewhere that they all are. This is all over Spain. This isn't just in 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 my town. Um, and one day I walked in, and they were all talking Valenciano as they do they did, and they beckoned me to come over and sit with them. And I thought, oh my goodness, what have I done wrong? That is the immediate thought I had. What on earth has happened? What have I done? What have I said? Anyway, pulled me up a chair, sat me down, poured me uh, a, a brandy, I think, which really at 10 o'clock for me is just a non-starter. I couldn't do it, but I didn't want to refuse it. Um, so uh, I, uh, I had my brandy. And they stopped talking Valenciano and they started talking Castellano. And I couldn't believe it. I nearly fell off my chair. I really did. Not from the brandy, but <laughs> I just, what did fall, I could not believe it because they don't do that. Just as you said, they will use it the other way round yeah. so that you don't understand what they're saying. But they absolutely changed for me and at that point was the day I became a member of the town yeah I knew that I'd sort of arrived I'd done my bit for the community by then a little bit with the with the kids and I suddenly became a member of the community and that from that day everybody in the town the, the fruit shop the the little cafes the bars the restaurants all treated me differently. I can't tell you that they did anything specific or special, but they just had a different attitude towards me. It was quite amazing. Yeah, well, of course, um, immediately, uh, as you're saying that, I can relate to going to Wales. I used to work the North Wales coast. Um, I was selling biscuits at the time, and um, it was exactly the same. The minute that uh, I started learning a little bit of Welsh, I was treated very, very differently. And, um, you know, uh, the, the Welsh used to switch very, very quickly to speak in Welsh if they didn't want me to know what they were yeah. talking about. I mean, I can remember going down to Harlech and uh, I was doing a, a, a big deal. Uh, we were all OK in, in um, English. And then this guy comes in and everybody's off in Welsh. And then they came back with a, a slightly amended deal. So it's not really that uh, unusual as tom jones would say um as we look next <laughs> as we look next at uh, if you want to do any business here then you've got to get yourself a nie number which is basically uh, just that you're signing into the system and that uh, they know that they can get you for tax, I think, as much as anything else. And it just means everywhere you go, anything you do, you'll be asked for your knee number. And uh, you have to produce that, um, which I can quickly tell you mine, but I'm not going to because if anybody's listening in, they might use it. And um, 
that wouldn't be the first mm. time. Um, but I mean, the thing that people don't realize is obviously you've got a different number for, for a business number, but you must get one of these if you want to start buying things um, or doing anything that involves money here in Spain. Um, that can be a little bit difficult to get. Um, these days, I think it's a lot better. But I mean, I can remember getting up at seven in the morning and going down to the police station and having to wait outside and eventually get seen um, and worrying a little bit about whether or not we would get the papers. Uh, what was your experience with that one, uh, Matt? Well, again, I, that was all arranged for me. I mean, through this, this estate agent, because it was all done almost at the same time. Um, and everybody does need, like you say, everybody, you cannot buy anything here unless you've got a knee number, a house, a car, anything. You have to be registered here in Spain with your knee number. Um, and it's almost like your national insurance number that you have in the UK. Everybody's got their own specific one. Um, and and it's, the, it's registered to you. So you use it for your to get your uh, social, your uh, medical card. You use, it to, you use it basically for absolutely everything here. Uh, and um, quite often, if the police stop you just randomly for whatever, and they check, they will check your knee number, and that goes to where you live. You've got to give the correct address. Um, it, it's a way of, of, of them checking up. But I, I didn't have any, any problems whatsoever getting my knee number because it was, I think, I believe it was all done when I purchased the house at the same sort of time, and it was done for me. Yeah. Okay. I had to go and sign. I had to go and sign with somebody at the, uh, at the, lo at the police station, but we walked in, we walked through, through the queues, and I was taken to a desk, I signed the paperwork, and I came out. Um, all this is uh, essential if you want to come and live over here. And, of course, uh, if you remember I said the Ayuntamiento was one word I'd learnt before I got here. That's the town hall. And there is <coughs> an electoral register. It's called the Padron. And it means yeah. that you can vote in the local elections. You can't vote in the national elections, but you can vote in your local elections and, of course, uh, I think there are still people campaigning to see if we can eventually get the vote um, for the national ele elections. Um, but certainly that will be something else you need to uh, start uh, as quickly as possible. Get a relationship with the town hall. If you can, maybe go down and say hello and um, obviously introduce yourself. I think that's a good thing. You'll find that um, petty officialdom is uh, something that they still haven't got over here in Spain. I think, you know... The... Rife, I think the word is rife. Yeah. Well, I mean, bureaucracy is, is rife here, isn't it? And uh, Oh, dreadful. Yeah. Okay. Dreadful. Jobs, for the, jobs for the boys as well. Yes. But um, that padron, just so that you know, um, and, and the listeners know, also, you have, you have to sign on because it enables the um, the p people in power, or whichever political party it is, to get a an amount of money from the government for your registration. So it it relies the local authority relies on people signing on the padron. People think I think one of the feelings is that if you sign on the padron, you are being checked or numbered or looked at or whatever. But that is not the case. I've had I've got a few friends in the Ayuntamiento and they are really adamant that if you sign on, all you're doing is helping whoever it is to get money from central government mm. to 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 do what. Of course, you need to sign on the Padron to do various things in Spain as well. Um, buy a car. You have to have a current Padron to show that that's where you live when you purchase the car. Um purchases anything big i think it's worth stating <laughs> yeah it's worth stating as well that um the mayor is a pretty powerful position here uh alcalde is the spanish word just in case it, it ever comes up um but basically um because of my connections with the radio station i i knew 
um, about five different mares here. And, you know, from the way that uh, you can watch people operate around the mare, they are influential. So it's better if you could possibly um, be well received by the mayor. And at least if um, if you've got something that you can offer the town hall, uh, for example, we used to go and uh, do English classes in Lanuthia. And um, of course, every end of year, the mayor would come in and uh, thank us and uh, give us a little present, which I think uh, was all very nice. And I think that it also, you know, it makes you feel that you're more part of the, the community. Um, I'm going to go, go next to the size of Spain because a lot of people don't realise that it's about three to four times the size of the United Kingdom in geography. And the number of people that live here is probably, uh, well, there are probably about 47 million at the moment, Whereas in Britain, they'll tell you that it's about 60 million. But I think with the amount of... <laughs> well, exactly, with the illegals, it's going to be near million. 70, isn't it? It's, it's going to be 70 million, I think. It's going to be 70 to 80, I would think. Yeah. Um, and counting. Um, and, of, and counting. <laughs> and, and again, if you're moving from, uh, say, uh, maybe one part of Spain, trying to maybe go and have a look around or going to visit. Uh, we have relatives in the Basque country. Uh, you've got to plan very carefully because the weather systems can change dramatically. And one thing I want to quickly tell you about is a thing called the Gotafria. So, Matt, uh, the Gotafria, it's like some of the uh, monsoon in India. We've had heavy heavy problems down in Cornwall. Um, I mean, it's severely, really heavy rain, which can be life-threatening. I mean, when we first came here, there was a couple uh, that got out of their car on the A7 um, during one of these terrible events, um, and their bodies were found down in Alicante. So, you know, yeah. unfortunately, we have, um, we have first-hand experience of this. Uh, I do also remember up in Finistrat, which is uh, not too far from Benidorm. It's the big mountains that overlook and give uh, Benidorm the microclimate that it has. Um, and I do remember that they had a street market. Uh, the rains came and there were a couple of elderly British people who went down the drains, these massive big drains. And they, like uh, the previous example I gave, they ended up in Alicante. So it's it's extremely important to pay attention to weather alerts. Um, of course, this... And the sun. Uh, uh, conversely, the sun as well, because, you know, we I can remember it 50 degrees and... It, it's, it is, it, it, we have such a varied weather. Fortunately, none of it lasts for very long, but the Gotafria, I, from my house, I live on a mountain, uh, on the side of a mountain, uh, and across the valley, uh, about when we had the big Gotafria, was it about 2008, 2009? Yeah, about that. I think it was a really big, big one. And um, we watched this new construction that was built on the valley opposite, wash away a whole house and all of its uh, retaining walls that have been built in concrete across the plot to hold it back. It was on a pretty steep part of the mountain, but it washed away. The whole thing collapsed into the valley. And I'm talking about probably dropped 100 metres into the into the Barranco, the, the valley below. And... Uh, when that rain comes, as you say, it, it can bring hailstones that actually put a dent in your car. And I'm not talking, they're the size of, of cricket balls. Mm. And they, they, can, they can really damage you. They can kill people and people do die. The thunder and lightning that you get here, the, th the, the lightning can strike and c cause horrendous damage. Uh, but only really in the season of the Gotafrias. It doesn't really happen very much throughout the year, but we do have this amazing climate change when it occurs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, again, for, following on from what Matt was saying was the fact that the sun, you have to treat the sun totally and utterly with respect. 
Um, you have to live differently uh, during <coughs> during the height of the summer. It is really better if you can to stay indoors. Probably something like uh, ten o'clock till about four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, obviously, you, you know you have to be very, very, very prudent. And um, if people locally give you little tips of what can happen, uh, for example, uh, Matt was talking about the Barranco. It's a dry riverbed. Unscrupulous builders build in these riverbeds, and will try and get you to buy a property thinking that you might never have heard of this. So, again, I think if you're coming over to buy property in Spain, it's like any other country, by the way. Unscrupulous people exist everywhere. But I suppose uh, it's quite a good time to explain that there are so many nationalities here that it's really quite um, an unusual hotbed of um, culture. And uh, the different towns, for example... Alfaz and Lanuthia, which we both uh, have been involved with, um, uh, they have around about 118 different nationalities living within that particular municipality. So, um, you know, I think, for example, we we used to run the open days. The uh, we had a, an international day in Lanuthia. We were the first people to organise this for the Brits. And I remember trying to get four tables. And uh, when uh, the Dutch coordinator, who you know, by the way, Bart, uh, was asking me about why we needed four tables, and I explained that it was, you know, England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, he was telling me that uh, the Dutch have four kingdoms. And so you learn a little bit more about all the different nationalities around you. And uh, when I uh, pursued... Uh, with him, the um, the reasons why we needed these tables, um, they have 17 million in Holland, which is not a huge. In fact, it might even need, might not even be 17 million. But of those four kingdoms, the Netherlands is 98 percent. So even then, it's only about Wales and Scotland and Ireland combined in its popu population levels. So uh, yeah. it was quite interesting, uh, this particular international day. Um, you know, I, I arranged for a pipe band uh, from Scotland to actually come in and um, start the whole event. And then we had Drew the Piper and then had all the national costumes. So again, around this country, we have different areas with different uh, customs and traditions, different foods. Uh, and we'll come on to the foods next because where uh, both you live in Altea and where I am now near Denia, um, we have uh, gastronomic delights, the most wonderful food from so many different places now, don't we? It's just a pleasure to be able to go out and have a, have a nice meal, isn't it? Oh, you can go from having a, a traditional snack, a Spanish snack, a, tapa, a tapas, to having a gourmet meal, um, a, a Dutch or German or, but any any European country, you're right. There's a massive mix, and it and it's it's made this area a very interesting area, really. The mix of people, as you said, so many different different nationalities, and the 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 sad thing for me is if you go to Benidorm, you only see one type of behavior and one type of person there um it's it's definitely got worse um i don't know if we're gonna define what worse is but if i were if i were advising people where to go i would not advise them to go to benedum i would advise them to go to many of the other places denia javier uh, altea and then maybe go for a visit into benedum but it depends what you want if you if you want to get beard up and legless, I suppose that's the place to go. Well, structurally, the infrastructure looks brilliant at the moment. They've they've upgraded everything. In fact, the latest oh, definitely the latest thing that I only heard about yesterday was you have to buy a five pound sticker to take your car into Benidorm now. Um, you know they're trying to. Well, that's all over. That's all over Spain. They're classifying cars. Um, and there are certain areas that are enforcing it now, but um, you you buy a car 
for ex- depending on its emissions. So you, you, it's only five pound, but it, you put this on your car, uh, on the windscreen, and it tells whoever. I, I'm not quite sure what they're going to do with it yet because they've not actually said what they're going to do with it. But in in a year's time, I think it's compulsory that every vehicle has to have one of these stickers. But like Spain generally, we've tried five times to get stickers for our vehicles. And of course, no one's got any stickers. (laughs) And that to me is typical Spain. They make these big uh, announcements and whatever. But there are, if you look on social media, people will say, well, I wasn't able to buy my sticker here, but I went to so-and-so and so-and-so and and I got my sticker there. But that's the idea of it. But I'm not quite certain whether they're going to make that an exclusive. So if you're a certain sticker, let's say it's A, you can go into town. If you've got a B, you can't go into town. Which is, I'm not sure that how they're going to work it. Which is rather typical of what I've found here. They have a good idea, but they don't think it through properly. Um, so we'll have to wait and see on that one. While, whilst we've only got about 10 minutes left on this particular podcast, it's important to let you know that there are three types of police that you'll come across here in Spain. Uh, so you'll have your local police who tend to uh, obviously um, identify by the fact that they are local and they'll look after local issues. Um, but then you've got the national police who you can also see in your locality and they can be involved in things that uh, suddenly y- you don't think they are the national police, but they're asking you for papers the same as the local police might not ask you as quickly for papers because they might know you by sight. And then, of course, you've got the, um, it's almost the military, really, the um, the Guardia Seville, who basically um, are not as paid, apparently, as well as the other two parts of the police force. Um, but for me, they are probably as threatening, if not more threatening, because they will certainly appear on the motorways and make sure that uh, you keep the speed limits and all that sort of thing. And I think the general comment for me is uh, I wouldn't mess around with any of the police because, quite frankly, um, they are armed and um, they can be extremely dangerous, as the song would say. Your thoughts on the police then, please? Well, I, I, I love the police system. I, I, I really feel safe. Um, with the police there aren't enough of them (coughs) excuse me there aren't enough of them but um, I think that seems to be a worldwide situation at the moment with everybody but uh, the uh, Policia Nacional the guys in blue you'll often see them at um, autopistas the stops off the motorways waiting there for that I've been told that they've had a tip that somebody is moving drugs from one place to another. They're, no, they're normally drugs and heavy criminal yeah. uh, activity, the, the, the Policia Nacional. And they're in blue. They dress in blue, um, fully armed. They won't be just have a, a, a holster and a pistol. They'll have a, uh, I'm not sure what machine guns are that they carry, but they're very, very well equipped. Yeah. Um, and there is no messing with them whatsoever. You, you, you do what you what you uh, you're supposed to do. Um, papers. You you must have your papers with you in the car at all times. You will be fined if you don't have your papers. All of the police will fine you. All of them. Um, so you carry your papers. You do what you're told, and you don't get into trouble. You um, the Guardia Civil used to be Franco's private. Um, army, if you like, that's where they came from. Um, Franco is not a word that you can use as a generally everywhere because people, some are supporters, some were, were negative. So he, he caused a lot of problems for some, but he built all the infrastructure, all the autopistas, all of the, he, he built social housing. He did amazing things for Spain, but you'll often hear him degraded and, and uh, vilified. But his, his private army was the Guardia Civil. They've changed slightly about 10 years ago. They were given a different mandate. And they're not as uh, 
they're not as scary, I suppose, as they used to be. But they, you, you could people. There are stories of people disappearing with the uh, Guardia Civil, just disappearing, uh, and they they command a lot of respect. And the local policeman is the local Bobby, as we would know him in England from the UK. He most of the time he's very helpful. He'll be on traffic duty. He'll be on. Uh, he'll be watching police. Uh, looking after the kids going from school over the zebra crossings. He does all the day-to-day policing work. However, having said that, if there's a crime or, or something committed, as you rightly say, they carry a gun. They have to do a different exam to the rest of the forces. It's all, it's an extra, if you like, for them. But um, they'll carry a gun. And like all the others, if they really have um, cause for use... They will use it. They will use their pistols and they will use their truncheons. And and so I've, I have seen it in uh, Benidorm a few times where somebody's somebody, I don't know if they're English, German, Dutch or whatever, has been drunk and has bad-mouthed the, the whoever, whichever force is there, and they've got beaten to pieces. But And then it's all over. It's finished. But they, the, to be fair, they, they really did ask for it. Yeah. Well, uh, I can't believe this has gone so quickly, but uh, I suppose we better quickly throw in a couple of phrases uh, regarding the fiestas because each of the towns has its own special fiestas which will occur. Uh, They have uh, certain organisations that uh, they all club together. Uh, They call it the Peña, where basically people will go and drink together. Uh, They'll maybe stay together. The Peña can be there constant throughout their life, uh, which is quite (coughs) a stabilising thing in their society where you've got young and old mixing. And you don't seem to have as many gangs of young people um, prevalent as you do in Britain. You don't seem to have that. I think possibly the radio culture is different as well, uh, which I think is time for another podcast for us to discuss those sort of issues. Uh, We have our uh, local papers in English and we have uh, radios that basically just play music these days in English. But um, I think in a general sense, if you're going to come to Spain and you do spend a little bit of time beforehand planning to uh, make your stay here um, a lot better and integrate better, then I think that uh, hopefully we've given you a flavour of what you could be doing and probably what you should be doing. So certainly papers, whatever papers you need, I think you've got to get those very, very quickly into your psyche. If they ask for papers, you've got to provide them. If they need them immediately, then you've got to show them immediately, uh, which Matt just alluded to with the uh, with the paperwork in the cars. Um, in a general sense, if you want to come and live here, um, yes, remember, it's very international. It's not just Spanish. You, you've got Spanish, you've got varying types of uh, the Spanish national, uh, the 17 communities. So there's different ways that they will remind you of their Spanishness, if there's such a word. Matt, I'll leave you to um, put your final thoughts on this one, please. Um, well, I, there are rules. There are rules in every country that you go to. And I think it's very, very important, as you've rightly said, to do your, to do your homework. And if you really intend to, to move here, there's nothing finer than actually being able to speak some Spanish and to, to mix with the, with the locals. It's really, really important. And the Peñas, they collect money. They all pay into their... their uh, they're different penures. And like you say, there are 80-year-olds in them and there are four-year-olds in them. Everybody doesn't pay the same amount of money, but they do pay in. And then they have this massive party at the fiestas where they buy drink, booze, food, and they all have fun. And if you're lucky enough, you can be invited into one of those penures as a guest. And it's, it's a family culture here. It is a brilliant family culture and I, I don't know of anywhere that exists like this in the world. I'm sure there are in South America mm. and other Spanish-based countries. But this is, I, I, I couldn't 
I, I don't want to live anywhere else. This is for me with all of its beauty and all of its, its cultures for me is the best place in the world. We've only skimmed the surface today, but we've given you the first of a flavour of living in Spain. Matt, as ever, it's a pleasure and uh, I've enjoyed our chat this morning. Thank you so much, Vince. It's been lovely to reminisce on all the nice things about Spain. <laughs> Look forward to the next one. See you soon.